Why a donkey? I mean, of all the things that Jesus could have chosen to come in to Jerusalem on, why a donkey? That's certainly what some were questioning, no doubt. There were horses, strong, sturdy horses that would have been the expected instrument that a, a king would have been chosen to would have chosen to ride on. Certainly history showed that. Whenever a king came into an area showing his dominance, coming in to assert his authority, his dominion, certainly a conquering king or a conquering general, they didn't come riding in on a donkey. They came on a war horse, right? And many of Jesus' own disciples, even at this point, we know from scriptural record, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying when He warned again and again and again, when we go to Jerusalem, what's going to happen there is not what you think is going to happen. It's not even what you want to happen. We're not going to Jerusalem so that everybody will rush me in and put me up on the throne and I'll chase Rome out and Israel will be the world power again. That's what they wanted. That's what they hoped for. That's what they expected the Messiah to do. To usher in a new age of Israel's dominance over the world. And even at this point of His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, they were still expecting triumph, not tragedy. And so, certainly, this whole thing about a donkey absolutely mystified them. That's not what a conquering king would have chosen. So why a donkey? Well, it demonstrated that he was indeed the Prince of Peace, which he was prophesied to be from Isaiah. And certainly, the donkey and, and the rider on it symbolized peace in other people's entrances into areas before. And so that in itself was not something that was unknown or unseen. And it demonstrated that in the case of Jesus, that he was coming as king, certainly, but he was coming as a peaceful king, not a conquering war-like king. He was the prince of peace. It fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy. That's the prophet that, that was alluded to in the passage that, Ma- that Hamlet read there from Matthew's Gospel. Fulfilled prophecy showed that he was the one prophesied and pointed to. And then, last but not least, it was a picture of his humility. Jesus came to earth in the most humble of circumstances imaginable. Now, as he's coming to Jerusalem, his humility is once again on display. A humble cult. And it was a picture also of the indescribable humiliation that he was soon to experience and why he was coming into Jerusalem at this point. It was all picturing what was to come just at the end of that week. Philippians 2, 5-8 captures for us the essence of who and what Jesus was, who and what He is, why He came, what He came to do. 
And certainly this scene, riding in on the, on the donkey in the midst of shouts of praise, yet himself being humble, was an absolute picture of this that Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5-8. He says there, Adopt the same attitude or mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, in other words, very God, oneness in nature with the Father, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, which was His, which he had, he did not consider that as something to be exploited. Something to be used for his own advantage. Even though that was his prerogative. That's not how he operated. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We're starting a series today called The Answer. And it's framed around 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We live in a hopeless world. We live in a hopeless society. Circumstances all around us every day point to how hopeless life it really is and life can be. More and more we're seeing that, day after day. You at some time will feel that yourself. You've felt it. You will feel it. Hopeless. Helpless. And so... It's important that we who say we are Christians, who know the one who is the living hope, it's important that we will live in such a way, in such a manner, where people around us in those hopeless circumstances and hopeless situations can look at us and see in us a hope they don't have. That they can see in us in the world that is so empty of hope, something in us different, even if it's just a spark a spark of hope that will make them want that and ask us, where do you get this? How are you able to have hope still in the midst of all of this? Maybe you've had the experience as you've gone through a tragedy in your life and in your family and others around you, maybe your community, maybe those you work with have stopped you and in some way they've asked you that kind of a question. Hey, I I just have to know, you're going through all this. I know, I know what you're going through. We've talked about it. I'm aware of it. How are you still able to cope? How are you able to have hope, which helps you cope? Where does it come from? Peter tells us that we're to always, the Christian is to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. And this series, we're going to answer where that answer comes from. And as we start off this series today, our our first answer is going to be to a question, why our works won't work? Why our works won't work? 
Why is it that we don't depend on our works for our salvation? Why is it that no matter how good you might be morally, ethically, it's not enough to make you right with a holy, just God? Why is it that our works won't work to save us, to bring us into right relationship with God the Father, to restore us and redeem us, which we all so desperately need? Why, why our works won't work? Why is that? Well, to answer that, we're going to look to the cross. The answers to all of this, the, the answer for the reason of the hope that we have, it's found in the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb of Christ. And so that's where we're going to be in this focus for the next few weeks. But today, our focus is singularly on the cross as we answer that question, why our works won't work. Look with me in your copy of God's Word at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We'll be starting off by looking at verses 6 through 15. Mark 15, verses 6 through 15. I'll be reading from the CSB, which should be easy enough for you to follow along in whatever translation you're using. Mark 15, 6 through 15. And as you are making your way there and before I read, let me just challenge you in this way. For many of you, if not, if not all of you, the passage that we will read today is going to be very familiar. And that's okay. But the danger in familiar things is that it can cause us to lose our wonder. It can cause us to lose our awe at what we hear, at what we read, because it's so familiar. I just want to challenge you Reject that. Refuse to allow that to happen. See this with fresh eyes. Hear it with fresh ears. This is not just historical fact, though it is. This is not just an absolute reality that occurred. It is. But listen, this this is the reason for the hope you have. This, what we read and what we are reminded of today, this is what changes everything. Everything. See it in that light. Mark 15, starting in verse 6. At the festival, and that's the Passover festival, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew, it was because of envy, that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call King of the Jews, even though that's not what they called him. Again, they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? You have to understand, crucifixion, even for the Romans, was something they did not rush to do. It was the most unimaginable torture of that day. It was, it was so vicious and, and so horrible 
that even the Romans, as cruel as they might have been, reserved for that for the most exceptional of cases. Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. That last statement there, after having Jesus flogged, Mark doesn't go into detail. He doesn't elaborate because he knows that everybody originally reading that, the the culture of this time would have needed no explanation. They would have all been familiar with how horrible that itself was. I mean, the cross was terrible. The cross was unimaginably awful. But just short of the horrors of the cross were the horrors of flogging. And what looks like just a passing reference here in this account was certainly not a passing reference for anybody who ever witnessed flogging and certainly not those who experienced it firsthand under it. I won't go into a lot of detail, but I would suggest maybe use this as a personal study and look up the details of what happened with flogging. Do it after you've eaten. Um, It's just about indescribable, the extent of the damage. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, that that gives, gives you a pretty good idea, as much as we can have, of what actually took place. Many people... Uh, died just at that, at the flogging. Jesus was flogged, and after that, he was handed over to be crucified. Some of the classic artists would often paint themselves into their pictures. They would paint a scene, paint a, a situation, a circumstance, and then they would, they would paint themselves into that, that scene somehow, just to kind of add their touch to it and make themselves part of what they were painting. And in his famous painting of Christ's crucifixion, Rembrandt painted his own face on the soldier that drove the nails through the hands of Jesus as he painted that scene. I don't know what you picture when you think about the details of what we just read here in this account from Mark's Gospel. I don't know what you think about when You try to visualize the events of the crucifixion, the details that we all do know so well. But any picture you come up with should include your face on the image of Barabbas. Any image we come up with as we think about the scenes described in this account or other accounts, church, we should see our faces We should see our faces in the crowd that cried, crucify Him. We should see our faces in the crowd that welcomed Jesus in on that donkey, but then by the end of the week cried that, crucify Him, away with Him. We should see our face in the Roman soldiers that drove the nails, put them up on the cross, and we certainly, certainly should see our face covering the image of Barabbas, whatever you conjure up there with that prisoner, murderer. 
Barabbas benefited from the most unfair prisoner exchange in history. Except for us. We benefited even more. And it was an even more unfair, unimaginable exchange and transaction at the cross for us than what it was even for Barabbas. Because Jesus allowed Himself to be declared guilty so we could go free. He accepted an undeserved, unimaginable penalty so we could receive undeserved forgiveness. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that that you, my God, would die for me? And yet it's true. It's real. It's what you received. It's what I received if we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go on in this account. Let's go ahead in the chapter, still in Mark 15, but let's go ahead to verse 33. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 39. Mark 15, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark 15, 33 through 39. God's Word says, When it was noon, that's the highest point of the sun, the sun was at its zenith, that's an important detail. When it was noon, hottest part of the day, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Think about what happened long, long, long time earlier from this in the, in the land of Egypt when Israel was uh, enslaved there and God sent plagues over Egypt to uh, bring judgment over Egypt and ultimately to get Pharaoh to release Israel, well, one of those plagues was darkness, absolute darkness, except for where the Israelites were. But darkness covered everywhere, everywhere that the Egyptians were. And there in Exodus, we're told that it was darkness that you could feel, thick, thick darkness that you could actually just feel around you. Um, have, Have any of you ever gone caving around the caves here or in other areas. You've gone on caving trips, a couple of you. Well, usually the custom is that your guide will take you to the deepest part of the cave, and you only have those little headlamps on anyway, and he'll take you to the deepest part, and then he'll have everybody turn off their their headlamps. So it's absolute pitch black. And, And it's that kind of darkness where it's so dark that you can actually just kind of feel the darkness. It's horrible. I don't recommend it at all. The darkness in Egypt with the plagues, it says that that's how dark it was, the darkness that you could feel. No one could even see their hand waving in front of their face. That's the kind of darkness that took place here. High noon in the Middle East. And yet darkness came over the whole land, absolute, total darkness. Why? Well, I think it has something to do with the fact, I think it has everything to do with the fact that the Son, S-O-N, the maker of the Son, was dying. And creation itself couldn't bear it. And it was a way of letting everybody know this is not just any man that's being crucified. 
This is the one who hung the sun in the sky. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, which he should not have been able to do, naturally speaking, with all he had already gone through. He cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or your translation might say forsaken me. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is what separated the presence of God from His people. This is where only one time a year could the high priest go in through that curtain and make atonement. Once a year. Now, at the death of Jesus, the Passover lamb, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, as He breathes His last, the curtain separating God from man was torn into from top to bottom, as if, and I think it's exactly what happened, the very hands of God ripped it from top to bottom, saying, now, now you can come in. Now you can know Me. Now I can be with you. The barrier has been lifted. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that the the veil of the temple was a symbol of Jesus' own flesh. And as as His body was torn, the curtain was torn, and He, by way of His flesh, made way for us, you and me, to enter into the Holy of Holies, having our hearts and minds and lives sprinkled, not just with any water, but with the very blood of Jesus, so that we can enter boldly to the very throne room of God, moment after moment after moment, something no other person in history up to the point of Jesus' death was ever able to imagine happening. And you and I take it so for granted. We just... At a moment's notice, we say, Father, and there we are in the presence of Almighty God. This is what it costs to give us that freedom. Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amen. Why did Jesus have to experience the abandonment of His Father? Why for the first time in eternity did the Son who had perfect communion and fellowship with His Father, a love relationship that we can't even fathom, a love relationship that is pictured, supposed to be pictured by the union of a a husband and a wife, 
which pictures the love that Jesus has for His church, His bride, and and it all pictures the love between the Father and the Son that existed for eternity. Why at this moment did the innocent, perfect, holy, totally righteous Son of God have to experience total abandonment from His Father? Where His Father turned away completely, abandoning Him, just as He will do for everyone who rejects Jesus, when they are sentenced rightfully, justly, but tragically to hell. That's what hell is. It's the total absence of the presence of God. And that's what Jesus experienced there on the cross when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? Why has this happened? He was experiencing the reality of hell. Why? Because Jesus became sin. And when the Father looked at His Son for the first time in eternity, He saw all of humanity's sin, past, present, and future, all on His Son, and He could not look at Him even for an instant. He had to completely turn away. And that was all for you and for me. You see... It all goes back to what happened at the beginning in the garden. Humanity, through Adam, humanity turned from God in the garden and turned to sin. Rejected God and turned to sin. Humanity turned from God in the garden, but at the cross, the Father turned away from the Son so that we could be restored. That's what happened. That's why Jesus experienced that. That's why the Father turned away. He turned away from His Son so that He would never, ever have to turn away from us. If we would receive the gift and the work of Jesus on the cross, then we will never have to know the abandonment by God. We'll never have to experience what Jesus experienced in our place. I love this statement by A.W. Tozer about what happened on the cross. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, he's right up there with C.S. Lewis for me. And I would highly recommend, if you don't know A.W. Tozer's work, if you've not read him, you should do that for sure. He said this about what happened at the cross. The cross is the lightning rod of grace that short-circuits God's wrath to Christ so that only the light of His love remains for believers. At the cross, the full weight of all of the wrath of Almighty God on all of mankind's sin fell on Jesus so that it would not have to fall on us. 1 Peter 2.24 says this of Jesus, He Himself, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 2.24 there captures the reality of what happened, but it also reminds us of the responsibility that results from what Jesus did. 
because he bore our sins in his body on the tree, because he was wounded for us for our eternal, total healing, not not limited to physical, eternal, spiritual healing, because he did all that, the result of that, the response of that, should be that we choose to die to sin and live for righteousness. And that's why Jesus did it. Jesus took our sin and died our death so that we could choose to die to sin and self. Before Jesus went to the cross and apart from Him going to the cross, church, we would be truly hopeless and truly helpless of ever choosing anything but sin. We would be locked into our sinful state. We would not be able to choose righteousness. We would not be able to choose holiness. But Jesus died to free us so that we could choose to live for Him instead of living for ourselves. So that we could choose to pursue righteousness instead of just always pursuing sin. That's the freedom Jesus purchased for you. Jesus didn't die to save you and give you life so that you could just live however you wanted. He died to save you and free you and give you life so that you could take that life and live it for Him. Are you with me? You understand? That's how it's supposed to be. So that we could choose to die to sin and self. And that should be our response. That should be what we do. Now, all that being said, it it all brings us to that that opening statement which I've titled this message, Why Our Works Won't Work. Why Our Works Won't Work. Surely you've already seen it. Why Our Works Won't Work. Because it wasn't up us up there on the cross. It was Jesus. He did the work that only He could do. But I, I want to make sure we see just how true that is. I, I want you to understand the full depth of why our works, no matter how good we might be, and no matter how good our, our good works are, why our works will never be enough. Isaiah 64 6. Isaiah 64 6. Why our works won't work. Isaiah 64 6 tells us this. <clears throat> all of us, all of us, have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts, all our righteous acts, you take them, you add them all up, you you pile them all up, here's what they're like. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Filthy rags. Used, bloody bandages. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. That's the human condition. That's what's true of you and me. That's our reality. Don't don't come to the Bible if all you expect to get is a nice pick-me-up. Come to the Bible if you want an objective mirror that shows you who you really are what you're really like, and why you really need a Savior. Because of this. That's, that's how all of our righteous acts in ourselves, done on our own, independent of Jesus, just our morality, our, our ethics, you know, our, our human goodness, that's what it amounts to. That's what it is before God. 
a polluted garment, filthy rags, unclean, totally unacceptable. Just like a carrying away of the wind. Then, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, 22 through 28. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there. I want you to see this for yourself. Romans 3, 22 through 28. <clears throat> As if Isaiah 64, 6 wasn't clear enough and plain enough about why our works won't work, this certainly will be. Romans 3, 22 through 28. The Apostle Paul writes this, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the goal, it's the standard, it's the target. And we all, no matter how good we might think ourselves or might actually be, all of us in our humanity have missed the target. We've missed the mark completely. We've fallen short of that perfect standard of God's glory. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified. That's declared right, made right. They are justified freely by His grace, not by works. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved. Through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of work, so that nobody can brag or boast about it. They're justified freely by His grace. That's undeserved merit and favor. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see that? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not through any effort of you or me. Verse 25, God presented Him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him, Jesus, to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words... For God to be perfectly God and perfectly just, He had to deal with sin. He couldn't just sweep it under the rug. He couldn't just look the other way. He couldn't just say to us, oh, that's okay. You know, that's just how you are. That's just the way you are. You're just sinful. I get it. He wouldn't be just. A perfect God has to be perfectly just and has to deal with sin completely. Or He's not holy And if He's not holy, He's not God. You with me? You understand? So He had to deal with sin. He couldn't not deal with it. He couldn't not judge it. If He didn't judge sin even one time, He would not be God. But, God is not just perfectly just. Everybody look. Everybody. He's perfectly merciful. And He's perfectly gracious. And so, God, as only God could do, He perfectly dealt with sin. He he was just in judging it, but at the same time, perfectly merciful and gracious by putting that judgment and justice on Jesus. 
That's what he did. That's what he did for you. Are you glad for that this morning? That's what he did. And then that leads to what Paul says next. And it's so, it's so typical of Paul. It's so logical. Look, verse 27, in light of that, and the, and the fact that he demonstrated his righteousness by, by judging sin, but he also justified the ones that should have received that justice. He justified them by passing over them and on to Jesus. Look, verse 27, where then is boasting? <laughs> where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, no, on the contrary. By a law of faith. And this is such an important verse. Memorize this verse if you haven't already. Verse 28. For we conclude that a person is justified, that's declared right before God in right relationship with Him. We conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Praise God indeed, because no works, no matter how good they might be, would ever be enough. Only the work of Jesus in our place on the cross would ever be enough, and it was. It's enough for all of eternity. Friends, let me just summarize it all in this way. Jesus accomplished the work that we could never do, and He gave us a life we could never deserve. That's the gospel. Jesus, that's the good news. And it is good news. Jesus accomplished the work we could never do, and he gave us a life we could never deserve. That's why our works won't work. But his works, his works did and do and will. So then, in light of all that, what should I do? That's the, that's the right question and response. Hearing all that, knowing all that, seeing all that, what should I do about that? What should we do with this? Thankfully, once again, God's Word gives us the answer. Romans 12.1 Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, which we've spent a lot of time talking about today, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, that's your whole person, your whole self, not leaving anything out. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means continual, perpetual, laying your life down before God for His glory, for His use. As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Some translations say your reasonable act of service. And indeed it is. May this be true of us. May this define our lives, that we are constantly laying ourselves down in light of the One who laid His life down for us. And it starts by remembering. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to remember the cross. We're going to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're going to worship. We're going to reflect. We're going to thank Him for all that He has done and made possible. Father, thank You for the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Thank You that our works won't work. We don't have anything in us that would make You look at us and say, oh yeah, okay, now now we can 
We can be in right relationship because you've done this, you've done that. You, you haven't done these things over here and you haven't done that. You're good. No, our, our works will never work. And that's why we needed a Savior. Thank you for giving us your Son to do the work we never could do. For giving us a life we could never earn or deserve. We now want to just reflect on all that Jesus did for us, all that He endured We want to say thank you. We want to worship. And we want to give you ourselves as a reflection of and as a picture of the Lord Jesus giving Himself for us. Work in our hearts. Do whatever is needed right now to purify us. Cleanse us of our iniquity. Reveal any unconfessed sin to the believer's heart. For the unbeliever that has not yet received the work of the Lord Jesus on their behalf for themselves, may right now this moment be the moment of their salvation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.